Prison Radio on CQT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.cqt.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, or on the second Thursday of every month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio or finding help searching for past programs, email prison at cqt.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Welcome to the Prison Radio Show. My name is Yasmin. My name's Noah. And we'll be your hosts for today's show. Today on the program, we feature the voices of Robin Maynard and Andrea Ritchie. They spoke recently at a panel discussion on racial profiling and police violence in Canada in the United States. But first, some news. Here on the Prison Radio Show, we've been closely following changes in Herman Bell's case and doing our best to report updates to you as they happen. After serving nearly 45 years in prison, Herman Bell was granted parole in March of this year, only to then have his release challenged via petition. Last week, a judge ruled that parole would indeed be granted, and Herman is scheduled to be released from prison today at 5 p.m. The Patrolman's Benevolent Association, which is the Police Union of New York, 
who was part of blocking Bell's initial parole decision, has stated that they plan to file another appeal. However, in the meantime, we'd like to join all of Herman's other supporters in wishing him a safe release this evening. Congratulations. From the CBC, 83-year-old Ralph Morris is back in custody in British Columbia after walking away from the Mission Institution, a minimum security prison in Mission, B.C. Morris was discovered missing during a headcount and was arrested about 12 hours after his escape. This is his second escape from a minimum security prison. Two New Brunswick correctional officers who are charged with manslaughter in the death of a Nova Scotia inmate have pled not guilty. Both officers face charges of manslaughter and criminal negligence in the death of Matthew Hines, which happened in 2015. The RCMP has said, quote, foul play was not suspected in the death of Hines, who was repeatedly pepper sprayed in a New Brunswick prison. However, Canada's correctional investigator, Ivan Zinger, found that prison staff used unnecessary force and failed to properly respond to Hines's urgent medical situation at Dorchester Penitentiary, where he was being held at the time. A report released in May of 2017 states that the repeated use of pepper spray at a very close range, quote, appears to have contributed to Heinz's rapid onset of medical complications. The report also stated that Heinz's death was preventable. The time is presently 11.08. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. To start off the show today, we'll hear some recordings from a recent panel discussion that took place at Reggie Solidarity Co-op at Concordia University during the Week Against Police Brutality in Montreal. The panel, titled Racial Profiling, Police Violence in Canada and the United States, featured speakers Robin Maynard, Andrea Ritchie, and Yusuf Fakiri. Thinking about being aware of that 
even just remembering working with teenagers who are often told, black teens that are told to disperse when there's three or more of them, right? Because three or more teens is seen as possible suspicion of being a gang. So we realized that actually black people's movement in public space is something that is, uh, is very much constricted uh, here in the present day. Similarly, of course, in realities that also impact indigenous folks living here. But I think that when we are, now that we're seeing this visibility, it's often framed as if it's something that is new, as if it's this modern crisis of policing that in Canada doesn't necessarily have any historical roots. So something that was really important for me in my own work and the reason that I choose to, read, to write a book like Policing Black Lives after being involved in different ways, you know, in addressing racial profiling in its modern incarnations was the fact that we don't, um, we, particularly in this country, I think, have been lacking the historical nuance that really allows us to see this crisis of carding of the fact that black people's movement in public space is so heavily regulated as something that's either non-existent or ahistorical. So it was very important for me to actually document, uh, for that reason, really 400 years of this practice to say that what's happening now is not a modern crisis at all, but it's a very age-old crisis that actually stems back to the legacy of slavery in Canada. So I thought I would talk a little bit about that today and about sort of the evolution of what we now talk about as racial profile and as carding so that we could understand how this is something that's actually central to the project of policing in Canada, but something that has actually always been central to more broadly the way that Canada actually has always carried forward as a nation state and looking to how actually after the abolition of slavery, many kinds of racialized control were just built into um, the so-called public institutions that we have today. So many, when slavery is acknowledged in Canada, it's often discussed, very frequently discussed, as if it's something uh, that is, the, the, the words that are very frequently used are benevolent. Um, examples of this benevolence are, for example, the fact that in Canada, there wasn't the same economy uh, to have the kind of plantation uh, slavery that we saw, for example, in parts of the American South or in the Caribbean. Um, there's also this idea that because um, enslaved people were often first to, forced to work in the homes of their white owners, that this proximity to families was somehow a protection from, from violence and harm. Um, and there's also this idea that because, I mean, this one is I find particularly strange, but because some enslaved people were baptized uh, by their owners, that this is somehow like a gift that makes the, you know, the harm of actually being construed as living property um, something that is therefore somehow benevolent, right? Because it's been sanctioned by God, who knows? So I think, first of all, it's really important to actually just remember that, of course, slavery itself is you know, a legalized form of racialized control and of racialized surveillance and of subjecting black people's everyday ways of being alive to a kind of scrutiny, to a lack of actual ownership over any of their own movements. Um, something that a really great uh, slavery historian, Harvey Money Whitfield, brings out in looking at slavery in the Maritimes in particular is how this idea of actually working at the domestic home is something that actually meant that people were subject to even more heightened forms of violence. That even, for example, families that lived um, uh, when they got to live together, sometimes for years under a white family, would still be sold separately from one another, that this protection, this closeness to, this, to the white family didn't actually protect people from, for example, being punished and sold away from their different family members, that there's an acute isolation um, that actually comes from being separated from this larger community of black folks that I think, as black people here, we still recognize elements of that today, um, of that isolation. Um, you can also look back to the history of punishment under the era of slavery, for example, when you see that both free and enslaved black people were actually punished with a significant kind of corporal punishment, you know, in the Maritimes actually having it being attached to public whipping posts 
and things like this, both, both free and enslaved, that are serious kinds of um, punishment and early iterations of racialized policing that we don't necessarily bring forward when we talk about, again, policing today as a present crisis. You know, the earliest attachments as well of really this idea of criminality uh, to black people's lives is something that, you know, Charmaine Nelson really reminds us is actually part of, again, the institution of slavery. You can see really the most in uh, what are called fugitive slave advertisements that actually make it a crime for black people to assert their freedom, to assert their personhood. Um, and you can actually see that, you know, people that did run away from the institution of slavery, from the very violent institution of slavery, were often subject to extreme forms of punishment and harm, including um, there is a man in Toronto, Nova Scotia, who ran away and was punished by actually being dragged to death by their earlobe um, when, when they were caught. Right? So we need to remember that, of course, this criminalization of black life is something that has long historical roots. And I mean, what Nelson also helps us think through, I think, that's really practical is that what it actually meant to have these runaway slave advertisements as part of the public culture, as something that was relatively common in newspapers, for example, is actually the first way that black people were like, represented in a way that was, you know, uh, in this sort of public realm, right? That um, this idea of associating black life with criminality is something that is inherently, you know, a century, a centuries-old practice. And of course, I mean, I think that I need to point to criminality because, you know, I was talking about the statistics about racial profiling earlier, but I think that often what ends up justifying this over policing is this idea that black people are somehow inherently more criminal and need to be controlled, right? Which, as we know, I think it's becoming more and more clear that black populations don't commit more crimes, but are just more significantly targeted, right? So we need to understand that this attachment of the criminal label, label is something that is a centuries-old practice. I want to talk about many things, so I'm going to move us forward um, several hundred years. But I think actually what I would like to do before that is really just point to how actually when slavery was abolished in 1834 in all Britain's colonies, that's an important time when we can actually, again, look to the way that policing of black people's lives um, in the public realm is something that was very much carried forward at this time by the police and by many other state institutions as well. But I think if we look to the way that policing disproportionately impacted black communities, we see, for example, in 1867, which is 30 years after slavery was abolished, black women were 3% of the population in Halifax, but were 40% of vagrancy charges, right? And vagrancy is the so-called crime of life largely being in public. It's highly sexualized, but we see that, of course, black women's movement in, uh, public space, even then, was subject to intense scrutiny and control. Um, in 1911, black men were incarcerated at a rate that was 18 times higher than that of white men. So I think that we're often, I think, we look to that, that history in the United States to, to say that there's that legacy of slavery that is, you know, represents, there's, there's a continuity between the actions of the criminal justice system um, and slavery that came before it, but I think that's something that we need to understand as part of our reality in Canada, that because of the historical erasure, even slavery existing here that I think is something that tends to be um, commonly overlooked, that is something that we need to break from. As far as history goes, I'm not going to go too far into it uh, right now because I do want to actually, what's also very important for me in the way that I think we think about policing uh, as activists, and I think many of us here are activists, is that we actually need to um, expand the way that we think about what we call uh, racialized profiling and policing to, experience, to also bring into view the experiences of black women, which of course you're going to do as well, but I really want to do that from a Canadian perspective. Um, so I'll bring it back to carding, which is sort of what I opened with as, um, or you know, street checks, which is how I opened 
with one of the ways that I think we're most commonly thinking of profiling. And I want us to think about the statement, um, if black women were free, then all of us were free. And I think that this is something that is often seen as just kind of like a meaningless catchphrase. I do not think that. But I think that sometimes it's brushed off as um, dismissed in this way. But I mean, what your work and so many other black feminists have, I think, made us realize is that by looking at the existence of black women, we're not focusing only on black women's experiences, right? We know that black women, for example, experience police violence, um, sometimes police killings as well. For example, the death of Shabrana Abdi, who was dragged seven flights down the stairs by the police in Hamilton, um, for example, right? But that if you actually look at the experiences of black women, you see not only those kinds of policing that necessarily should inform um, our activism and our responses and what we mean by Black Lives Matter, but that we can actually see a much broader array too of how profiling occurs and where profiling occurs that actually goes well beyond the kind of public spaces that we associate um, with carding. Because as I mentioned, I think this idea that black people can't move freely in the same way in public space is something that's seen as a crisis that affects only black men. But we need to realize that of course not only do black women also experience disproportionate police stops, though you very rarely get like gender disaggregated information about that in Canada at this time, but there are actually many other kinds of profiling of black women that have been institutionalized since slavery's abolition that I think really allow us to broaden our struggles against racial profiling and racialized punishment um, into other institutions, which I think if we're really going to have any successful and really successful and really intersectional movements for racial justice that we need to also consider. So something I think I, we need to think about is beyond um, you know, obviously including policing, I don't mean to dismiss the, the very important reality of fighting um, racial profiling practices, of pushing for more data, of really thinking about disarming the police, <laughs> abolishing the police, right? But I think we also need to look at, for black women, for example, um, you know, I spoke earlier about how many black folks were particularly working in these domestic situations under slavery, but we need to realize that the way that capitalism has developed is such that actually black women's um, work for a long, long time in Canada after the present has often also been in the private homes of white families, right? If we think about the kind of racialized control that black women were subject to working as domestics under slavery, that that same kind of domestic labor is something that's been very much carried forward in the way that, um, that, that black women still often work and live, particularly throughout much of the 20th century. So Patricia Hill Collins has a great way of thinking through this other way of thinking about histories of racial profiling, talking about how black women working in white homes were always subject to this intensive scrutiny by white families, and how we think about how this ongoing, you know, day-to-day -day surveillance of black women's movements kept going forward um, throughout really relegating black women to this kind of work. We, I think we need to see this as another kind of profiling uh, that's built into some of our institutions. So if you look to the creation, for example, of the Caribbean Domestic Workers Program that exclusively brought in, um, in its inception in 1955, Caribbean women to work in white homes, um, you can read, actually, oral testimonies that have been collected by Maqueda Silvera and others where black women talk about even the ways that they would be moving their hands as they put down a cup, for example, were subject to um, the site and surveillance within, within the homes that they were in, right? So I think that um, that level of of surveillance in the private realm is something that continues very much as well. I only have five minutes, so I'm gonna to try to wrap this up, but in, term, in terms of the way that child welfare as an institution and the way that social services more broadly have actually also impacted black women, the way that social service agencies, like if a woman, for example, is this stuff, poor black women have in the face of what's called welfare fraud, which is really just the crime of making money over top um, of your tiny allotments of welfare, which literally cannot pay for your rent, um, but have been represented as the face of this crime, and that actually means that welfare agents, for example, 
um, if somebody calls in a so-called snitch line, can actually enter the home. And always, the police actually are not allowed to, right, without a warrant, can actually enter black women's homes, search their homes, talk to their children, uh, and in many ways are deputized with the kind of policing power that we often associate only, you know, with the police. But if we look to the experiences of black women, we can see that this kind of policing is actually something that doesn't exist only in the public realm, but actually in the private as well. So I think I just really wanted to remind us of that, of how those experiences can actually both like enlarge what we understand as racism and racist and racialized profiling, but can also help us, I think, in our movements actually have a broader terrain of how we're actually gonna approach the struggle for freedom, for black freedom. Maybe I'll wrap it up there as far as what I'm really trying to do, I guess, with thinking about uh, like a holistic and an intersectional way of understanding what is racial profiling. Um, and I know that uh, both of you are also going to bring forward um, more issues about this, but I think that it is really bringing forward a broader array of experiences that are going to allow us to actually fight in a way that hopefully means that we can fight for everybody to win. And that's why I think that really that statement, you know, for black women to be free, everybody would be free, actually allows us a certain kind of understanding of freedom um, that is actually not narrow in the way that it sounds in that first statement, but is actually incredibly, incredibly broad because of what it allows us uh, to think about. Thank you. That was Robin Maynard, the author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, speaking last month at Concordia University. She spoke alongside Andrea Ritchie, who we are going to hear from next. But first, here is a song. I wish I could live 
And we're back after a slight technical error, and that was the one and only Nina Simone with the song I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the album Silk and Soul. Next up, we have Andrea Ritchie, who's the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and co-author of Say Her Name, Resisting Police Violence Against Black Women and Queer Injustice, the criminalization of LGBT people in the United States. She spoke at Concordia University last month on the topic of racist and sexist police violence. It's such an incredible privilege to be here. It means a lot to me to be here at Concordia because both my parents uh, graduated from Concordia as, and came here to school at the same time as my brother, um, who was involved in the uh, computer takeover, you might have heard of, the computer room takeover, you might have heard of. Um, and so, um, I've never actually been in this building where I may potentially have been conceived, I don't know, but <laughs> I think um, it's just really meaningful to me to be here because all of them very much shaped who I am in terms of my political um, understanding of the world and um, and my commitment to, to social change and capitalism. So um, it means a lot. And also to be here with Robin because I think her book has created opportunities for me to talk with my mother as a Jamaican immigrant who came here in 1960, the same year that black people were given the right to vote, <laughs> um, who, you know, a lot of could almost not marry my father because um, even though there were not formal miscegenation laws in the book, they just couldn't find a church that would actually marry them before I appeared in the world. Um, and that, you know, just really sort of gave us the language to have a conversation about what she had experienced as a black woman coming here to, the, to Canada in the 1960s um, and, and to talk about sort of how that was part of the larger context. So it's really great to learn alongside her while reading about this book, so I'm just really grateful for that. Um, and I do just also want to come here with some deep humility. I mean, I was born a few miles from here, but I've only ever partied here. I've never organized here. So I feel like I can tell you about, you know, the first time I saw R.E.M. at the Thanos post in like 19 blah, blah. But I can't uh, tell you about what police violence looks like here in the town where I was born. So um, I just want to acknowledge that and um, be clear about that. But in many ways, at the same time, my work started not far from here because um, I grew up on the unceded land of um, Gaudisatake and was there uh, during the Oka crisis, or what's known as the Oka crisis, in 1990. I came home from college that summer um, and bore witness, kind of for the first time, to the very reality of state violence that is necessary to maintain colonialism on this land, right, and to maintain the land that I had grown up on as um, settler land and particularly how that violence played out in the bodies of indigenous women um, who were at the front lines there. And was very much reminded of that um, while I was finishing this book during the summer of 2016 when um, things were going on at Standing Rock and the, the resistance was going on at Standing Rock and feeling in many ways like my understanding of these issues was very much shaped by both of those experiences. But I would say that this, this work also started for me in Toronto um, I moved up there shortly after Kanazatake uh, in um, the early 90s and was working on, on issues related to violence against women, was on the board of a shelter for women who were experiencing domestic violence and homelessness, and in that context was invited to be part of sort of a city-wide uh, reckoning of how police officers were responding to sexual violence 
And it was prompted by the fact that um, a white woman who um, goes by the name Jane Doe had essentially been used as bait by police to catch a serial rapist. They knew who he was, they knew what kind of women he was going for, they knew where he was operating, and they knew that she was a local target. And instead of warning her and other women in her neighborhood, they waited for him to rape her in the car on the way out of her house. And she brought suit against the Toronto Police Department for failing to protect her and won. And part of what she won wasn't just justice in her own case, but because she's an activist, she won sort of an investigation of how the Toronto Police Service um, sort of investigate sexual assault cases. So I was invited to become a community sort of advisor on that process. And what we very quickly began to hear as part of that process was about police officers not only badly investigating sexual assault, but committing sexual assault in the course of their duties. And so I'll never forget first hearing in 1993 about a woman named Audrey Smith, who, like my mother, um, my aunts and my cousins, was Jamaican. Um, and happened to be up for a visit and was standing on a very busy corner in uh, Toronto. Um, and some police officers walked up to her and told her to lift up her shirt and drop her pants and essentially strip naked on the street because, in their words, she looked like a drug dealer. It just struck me because that could have been anyone in my family, but also because it was just such a blatant form of racial profiling. And it was a form of racial profiling that was informed not only by her race, but also by her gender as a black woman, and also by her national origin as a black woman from Jamaica. Um, and by the fact that she was standing on a street corner at one in the morning, and very much about controlling the movements of black women's bodies in terms of you know time of day, et cetera, et cetera. So black women organized around her case. It was investigated by the Special Investigations Unit. Um, they found uh, no wrongdoing on the officer's part. But a few months later, a black law, sorry, a white lawyer from the UK was in Toronto and was strip searched publicly also. Of course, you can imagine the reaction was very different. And prompted a sort of investigation also of the city's uh, strip search policy. So between those two processes, I began to hear the stories of black women um, who were being subjected to these strip searches, to body cavity searches, to very sexualized violations of their bodies in the context of the war on drugs, whether they were walking down the street, whether they were calling for help in their home, whether they were 16-year-old, or whether they were 66 years old. And also hearing about sexualized violence, not just in the form of strip search and cavity searches, but of officers arresting people for prostitution and then insisting that they strip naked in the police precinct as sort of entertainment for the officers, or extorting sex from them in exchange for leniency, or just straight up raping them and saying, well, because you're involved in sex trade, you can't possibly be sexually assaulted. So at the same time, there was quite um, a lot of activism around police violence happening. Um, because it was shortly after the officers who beat Rodney King, um, bloody and almost to death on camera, uh, had been brought to trial but acquitted. And so you may remember the biggest protest in Toronto's or in Canada's history was when we took to Yonge Street and expressed our outrage at the fact that those officers were not held accountable um, in, I believe, it was 1993, which was the same year as Audrey Smith's strip search on the street corner. And what I noticed was everyone was talking about Rodney King but only the black women, the small group of black women, um, who I was fortunate enough to be in community with, like Beverly Bain, like Dionne Brand, um, like Angela Robertson, um, and others were, were talking about the experiences of black women. And I was sort of like, well, what? why is this? I thought, well, maybe people just don't know. So I just started documenting, right? I'm just saying, oh, I'll just, I'll just write up these stories, I'll testify about them in front of city council, and then once I do that, then, then that'll be part of the conversation, because I was in my 20s and Right? And so I realized um, later, obviously, that wasn't the problem. It wasn't that people didn't know about it. 
Um, and so began what kind of became a, a lifelong journey to documenting, but also organizing, agitating, advocating constantly for black women and women of colors and indigenous women's experiences to be uh, part of larger conversations about both racial profiling, mass incarceration, mass criminalization, um, and also violence against women. Because I, I'm, you know, it seems to me that if we're talking about sexual violence, it should uh, be as much you know, considered violence, violence against women, whether the person who's committing the violence is a police officer or not. Um, but somehow, one was part of the conversation about gender-based violence, and the other wasn't. So, what I discovered and sort of what Invisible No More does is sort of look at issues of racial profiling, police violence, and mass incarceration through the lens of women's experiences and experiences of trans and gender non-conforming people. And what it shows is that if you look carefully where we're already looking, you'll find women's experiences. So similar to like looking where we're already looking in terms of what is happening with carding, if you look where you're already looking with the US equivalent, which is called stop and frisk, you will find that the rates of racial disparities among stops of women are identical to the rates of racial disparities among stops of men. But you have to analyze the data in such a way that we're not just comparing blacks and whites and men and women. You have to be able to analyze it in a way that's more intersectional. Um, but when you do that, you'll see that that is true for pedestrian stops, that's true for traffic stops. And in fact, in Ferguson, Missouri, the year before Michael Brown was killed there, the group of people who experienced the greatest number of traffic stops of any group was black women. So that's a question of looking more carefully where we're already looking. If we look more carefully where we're already looking um, in terms of excessive force, we will see very similar forms of police brutality, uh, physical violence visited on black women. So there was recently um, an Oscar-nominated short uh, documentary produced by HBO, which you can watch online. It's called Traffic Stop, and basically it shows a traffic stop that, that consists of what most folks would consider a black male experience of being stopped. But it features, in this case, a young uh, black woman who's a school teacher who was pulled over about 100 miles south of and a few weeks before Sandra Bland's fateful traffic stop, who essentially experienced the kinds of violence that we often associate um, with, with traffic stops of men. And so it was significant that it became a sort of Oscar-nominated short doc, um, but the, my hope is that it, that it makes it clear that that kind of violence that Sandra Bland experienced, that Breonna King, the woman who's a shudder that this film experienced, that many other women whose stories are told in my book experience, people start to understand that that is part of driving while black for black women or walking while black for black women. And in fact, um, on the way to the precinct, she sort of said to the police officer who was driving her, like, why, why did this man pick me up and flip me around like a rag doll when I didn't do anything? Um, to justify any of that other than asking to hurry up and like get a ticket. And the police officer just said to her, well, you know, straight face, because black people have violent tendencies. And he was saying this to pound school teacher who if you apply all the politics of respectability to had all the characteristics, never get trouble off before, never, you know, accused of any kind of violence before, master's degree, school teacher, etc. Right? So what it shows that the kind of controlling narratives, the racialized perceptions that we tend to associate with black men um, as being perceived by police officers as inherently violent, inherently threatening, apply to black women no matter how young, how small, how, um, you know, what they're doing at the time. And then sort of similarly with deadly force, if you look more carefully, you'll see black women's experiences of deadly force um, are very similar to those of black men. And in fact, a recent study came out of University of Washington in St. Louis that showed that 
Black women are the only group for whom the majority of police shootings happen when they're unarmed. So 60% of black women who were killed by police were unarmed at the time that they were killed. So what the study concludes is that like, the perception of threat, or what's called threat failure, basically when the police officers perceive you to be a threat when you're absolutely not, is highest for black women than any other group. So there are some deep ways in which controlling narratives that were born out of slavery framing black women is deeply animalistic and threatening and menacing and um, sort of superhuman um, that were used both to justify putting them to work in the field in the same way and subject them to atrocious torture, but also to justify systemic rape, um, continue to play out every single day in police interactions in ways that we don't talk about. The other thing, uh, and then similarly in terms of uh, police presence in schools, I don't know how prevalent that is here in Quebec. I know in Toronto, uh, Black Lives Matter just succeeded in um, putting an end to that, which is just a tremendous victory. But it's particularly a tremendous victory for black girls because in the United States, again, the sort of school-to-prison pipeline operates in many ways in its most pernicious forms with respect to black girls, who are often literally arrested, often violently, as young as the age of five, for essentially throwing a temper tantrum in class, which I can guarantee every single person in this room has done maybe at least once in their five. So, um, but they're arrested for it because, as recent research shows, black girls are never given the chance to be children. They're perceived as mini adults and mini versions of these giant threatening stereotypes of black women. And so there's no other way to explain why police officers would walk up to and handcuff a five-year-old black girl um, and then realize that they couldn't fit the cuffs around her wrist because they were too small and persist in trying to figure out how to make them fit around her upper arm or around her shoulders. And, like just literally, there's not, it's not like a gut reaction, like they were intentionally doing it. There's no other way to explain it except that these perceptions of black women now translate to, to black girls. And so black girls in the US make up 16% of the population of girls in school, but 37% of the population of girls arrested in school, and 43% of the population of girls that the cops are called on in school. And it's very often very subjective types of things like being disorderly or defiant or uh, dress code violations would be too, you know, promiscuous in their attire, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, there's lots of research documenting how discriminatorily enforced these things are, but of course, this literally pushes girls out of schools because um, they have, you know, being, being arrested and it shows a strong correlation with each other. I think the other thing that bringing um, women into the conversation um, illuminates for us is kind of new sites of racial profiling. So the policing of prostitution um, in the United States and Canada is one of the primary sites of racial profiling and what I call both racialized gender profiling that really relies on these, again, deep-seated stereotypes of colonialism and slavery that say that, that justify the systemic rape of indigenous women, of um, African-descended women, of immigrant women through these projected narratives that they're inherently sexual, sexually deviant, uh, promiscuous, and constant sort of temptation to all kinds of abusive people. And um, what that means is that the same kinds of racial disparities that we see in traffic stops and street stops are seen in prostitution arrests. So in New York City, 88% of stops are black and brown people, and 88% of arrests for prostitution-related offenses are black and brown women. Um, and so, and we also see continuing profiling of Asian women as being engaged in prostitution and trafficking from the passage of the first anti-immigrant law in the United States called the Page Act, which explicitly excluded all Asian women on the grounds that they must all be engaged in prostitution. 
to the ways in which all Asian-run businesses in certain uh, areas of town are rated consistently as potential threats for trafficking and prostitution, um, along those same stereotypes. Um, and similarly, indigenous women experience similar kinds of profile here and in the US. It also makes clear, as um, Robin was saying, kind of new forms of profiling around shallow welfare and um, a, pro a phenomenon called giving birth while black in the United States, where basically um, officers will be profiled as um, having consumed drugs during your pregnancy, your prenatal test, and uh, delivery, and you may often be searched or have your blood drawn without your consent, and then sometimes be arrested literally after you've given birth for delivering drugs to a minor on that basis. That's a form of racial profile that we don't talk about nearly enough, but one that um, has strong consequences for women and the And lastly, I will say that um, these same forms that I've been talking about in terms of racial profiling that happen when police are out of the world enforcing the law also happen when police respond to calls for assistance from uh, black women and women of color, whether it's black women in a mental health crisis, which more often leads to death um, than assistance, or black women who are calling for assistance around domestic violence, who often are perceived not as people who need help or deserving of support and love and care, but as potential perpetrators of people who must unite with violence and common deadly force. And uh, similarly, uh, black women who experience sexual violence um, sadly often report further sexual violence by police officers who are responding. So there are many ways that racial profiling plays out that then have to shape the ways in which you respond to racial profiling moving beyond, uh, as Rebel was saying, carding Canada's stop and frisk in the U.S. And I think that they help us understand. I think if we just look at, it helps us get to more complete solutions to the issues. Because if we just look at the issues through the lens of men's experiences, we might think that reforming stop and frisk or reforming carding programs or changing use of force policies is the way to go. But if we look at it through the experiences of, of black women of color, we see it's a much deeper uh, problem and it's much more entrenched and it's one that we need to make us really actually kind of have to radically think whether the police actually are a source of safety for black women and women of color, and if not, what we're going to commit to as a society to create that safety for black women and women of color in all the parts that I talk about. So, that was author and activist Andrea Ritchie. The time is presently 11.46 a.m., and you're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca.
singer Amani with a song about Viola Desmond and Viola Desmond of course being a black Nova Scotian woman who uh, famously refused to leave a whites only section of a movie theater and a a very important uh, part of uh, civil rights and uh, resistance against racial segregation in uh, so-called Canada. Next, we have a few more news headlines for you. So, the French Parliament this week has been advancing an immigration bill restricting asylum seekers. The bill would shorten deadlines for migrants to apply for asylum while doubling the time that authorities can detain them to 90 days. It would also allow for one-year prison term and fines for migrants found to have illegally crossed into France. Children could also be jailed with their families. The bill also continues a policy under which French citizens face fines and prison sentences for helping undocumented migrants, so-called crimes of solidarity. Several French parliamentarians, such as Mathieu Offrelin, opposed the new anti-immigration bill, calling it, quote, unbelievable. Offrelin further stated that this, quote, crime of solidarity must be profoundly modified. In Georgia, immigrants imprisoned at a for-profit detention center have filed a class action lawsuit claiming they were forced to work for $8 a day or less in violation of U.S. labor law. The suit alleges that prisoners at the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, who refused to join the so-called voluntary work programs, face retaliation by guards, including threats of criminal prosecution. One former prisoner says he worked eight-hour shifts in the prison's kitchen for up to seven days a week, earning just $4 a day. He says when he refused to work, he was put in solitary confinement for 10 days. The prisoner is operated the prison is operated by Core Civic, formerly known as Corruptions Corporations of America. The ex-worker podcast produced by CrimeThink invites you to write to Cedar, who was arrested last week and is facing conspiracy charges stemming from a March 5th anti-gentrification march that took place in downtown Hamilton. They are currently being held in segregation, so nice letters are especially crucial for helping break the isolation they may experience in prison. Address the envelope to Peter Hopperton, but address the letters to Cedar. Uh, To write to Cedar, you can write to Peter Hopperton in Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center, 
165 Barton Street, East Hamilton, Ontario, postal code L8L2W6. The Federal Fisheries Ministry, um, the, yes, the Fisher, Fisheries Minister Dominique LeBlanc announced last month that Correctional Service Canada, CSC, will undertake a study to restructure psychiatric services at Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. The results of the study will be available in 2019. The Quebec Ombudsman, Marie Rinfray, whose job it is to hear public complaints regarding the rights of prisoners in provincial facilities, recently released an investigation report on the consequences of the rise in intermittent sentences in Quebec's correctional facilities. According to the report, the increase in intermittent sentences exacerbates the problem of overcrowding in many prisons, especially on Saturdays and Sundays. The report included the following findings. Inadequate detention conditions, such as incarceration in areas not intended for that purpose and insufficient bathroom facilities, worse conditions for female prisoners, harmful conditions for all prisoners due to overcrowding during peak periods with an increased risk for tension and violence, high number of prisoners shuttled from one facility to another, and more strip searches. In its report, the Quebec Ombudsman made 17 recommendations, most of them to the Ministère de la Sécurité Publique and others to the Ministère de la Justice. The recommendations are meant to favor alternatives to incarceration, according to the Ombudsman's own press release. Local anti-police research publication Even the Dust reports that the SPVM, in conjunction with Montreal Park authorities, have been conducting for the past decade indecency operations in three of the city's biggest uh, parks, Parc Maisonneuve, Parc La Fontaine, and Parc Agrignon. According to the publication, the police operations named Operation Sentier, Project Narcisse, and Project Nirvana specifically targeted men who have sex with men in parks. Between 2009 and now, nearly 200 men have been arrested and criminally charged in the greater Montreal area for engaging in consensual sex. The author of the publication says that the SPVM operations are attempts to discipline deviant desires out of, an ex- out of existence in a remarkably inconspicuous and subtle form of sexual cleansing. We're getting pretty close to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show, you can do that at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next episode of Prison Radio Show will air on Thursday, May 10th at 5 p.m. If you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write to us at The Prison Radio Show, or you can simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, postal code H3A2B3. Thanks for tuning into the Prison Radio Show here on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Noah. And my name is Yasmin. And we've been your host for today. Please stay tuned.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Hey, yo, check this out. This is Flavor Flavor. You listening to C. Hey, yo, check one, two. This is Flavor Flavor Public Enemy. You listening to K. Yo, check one, two. This is Flavor Flavor Public Enemy. You listening to CKUT and the place to be on the T.O.P. CKUT 90.3 FM. Kicking it, kicking it. Get MP a problem. Oh. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah. I like CKUT because of all the different music programming and how it uh, brings together lots of different kinds of people under one roof. Yeah, man. Why do you like the radio so much? CKUT is great because uh, they let you volunteer and get involved and eventually have your own radio show. Yeah, man. Um, 